Lefty Lucy, Ratty Teddy, Texan Con in the Middle Show. It's your host, Craig Allen. If you're tired of seeing the media cater to from the far right or the far left, if you're sick of talking points from the extremes, if you would rather hear about ways America could get along, then you're listening to your new favorite guide from the political void, also known as the middle of America politics. Let's join our host for an entertaining look at politics. Here's Craig Allen. Welcome in all across this great country. We are so pleased that you are listening to our new show. We thank you for this. We love, love, love this country and appreciate all of you who help make it such a wonderful place to live. We have such a fun and interesting show for you today, so please stick around. We're going to discuss, of all things, the census. Oh, now, don't run away. Don't don't be frightened. It. I know it sounds boring. Don't, don't go away. Uh, that is until we get to the word gerrymandering. Ooh. Don't tell your mom about that word. She might put soap in your mouth or send you to the corner or send you to your room. And don't tell your wife about that word. She might think it might mean... Well, anyway, no. We will talk about what it really means in politics in our poli for the normal guy feature. And in honor of Veterans Day, we will highlight a great American hero who gave his life for his country in a way no one expected. And he is honored today in a way you might not know what to expect with him. And we will look into religion in this country. Ah. Yes, we're going to talk about religion and politics all in one show. Ah. Just what they told you not to do at the dinner table. Ah. And finally, we'll talk about what is in our election. The confection in our election Mm. in a new segment where we'll delve into one slice of the cake. Yummy. Or a cut of the pie or a hunk of the confection. Well, I'm getting hungry. Uh, No, I'm talking about a crucial piece of what is really behind this election. We'll talk about what has happened historically when a president who lost one time runs again. (gasps) And finally, a little history with this unusual occurrence. But what I want to do is thank all of you for joining us. As I said, this is Lefty Lucy, Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. I am that Texan, Craig Allen, your host. From the great state of Texas, the only state that was once its own country. Howdy, partner. And on Veterans Day, I want to not only salute the veterans of our great nation, but the great state of Texas who helped make it what it is. And some say it still feels like its own country. And maybe we can thank people like the great Davy Crockett for that. Because he came here from Tennessee. He said, you can all go to hell. I'm going to go to Texas. And he came to Texas and he helped make it what it is. But that's for another discussion. Right now, we're going to get into our new program. And we're going to talk about the census in our poli-sci for the normal guy segment. The census. I know it sounds boring. But it is anything but boring. Yes! There is more power exchanged here than in any other way in our country. Ah! In fact, this is where it gets started. You hear more and more organizations trying to help you get counted in the census. Let's first get to the facts. The framers of the Constitution were trying to make our country as much of a democratic institution as they could. They chose population counting as a way to figure out how to share power between the states. So in other words, to see how powerful Texas is versus New York, let's count how many people there are there. Makes sense, right? 
This is how the Constitution explains it. It's not based on wealth. No. It's not based on land area. No. It's not based on education level or sex or religion or political power. No. It is based on, straight from the Constitution, I'll just read it to you, quote, Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers. This is from Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution of the United States. So what comes next when we count the population? We must then reapportion the House of Representatives. Uh. There are 435 House members. They represent us, one for each little area, all out there. They count up the populations in each state and they decide how many seats in the House of Representatives they get. And that's also decides how many electors they get in the Electoral College. This does not happen right away. It takes a while to take the census, first of all, and then it takes a little while after the census to figure out, okay, we're gonna count this area and we're gonna put this many here and we're gonna take this many away from this state and give this to this other dinka, state. Dinka, it allocates a lot of stuff. It starts with getting each state right and then each state gets at least one seat. So no matter how small of a state it is or how small their population is, they get one seat. So Wyoming has very few people. Wyoming still gets a seat. Alaska has very few people. Alaska still gets a seat. <laughs> Washington, D.C. gets a seat. We start with 51. And then beginning with 52 and going through 435, the seats are apportioned by their population. The results are used to adjust or redraw, or here comes that word, gerrymander the election districts based on where populations have increased or decreased so as people move away die off have birth booms or death booms in some cases this adjusts how our government works Okey state dokey. legislatures or commissions or whatever the state decides how they're going to redraw their districts are primarily responsible for redrawing congressional and state legislative districts uh. the u.s census bureau provide states with population counts. This is why it is mucho importante. Yes! And this means very important for everyone to be counted in the census. Do not ignore your census worker. Do not ignore that thing in the mail or email or however you get it, however you encounter the census. Aww. There's billions of dollars of federal funds that are spent on infrastructure, seats of government like you know, they figure out how many places you need to have to go and register your car, for example. Hospitals, schools, public areas like parks, etc. A whole bunch of stuff I could spend all day just naming them off. Some of the big government programs work off of this too, like Social Security, Medicare, Veterans Programs, Medicaid, Head Start, Block Grant Programs for Community Health, and the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP. Way too many others to mention here. Private businesses even use this data to make decisions on should we open another location here? Like McDonald's says, oh man, we got too many people in this area. Let's open another McDonald's. Mm. So now we know how our population numbers from 2020 and the redistricting has been done and approved. It has gone through some court battles and fights and feuds. Well, let's take the state of New York. It's a fun <laughs> one, really fun. In 2020, they made things very interesting. <laughs> First, New York wanted to drop their districts. They wanted to gerrymander them to the left for Democrats. Some states will draw crazy maps. But let's go back to gerrymander. What the heck? Where did this word come from? Well, it combines the word salamander with the last name of the vice president of the United States back in 1812, Elbridge Jerry, G-E-R-R-Y. Happy slappy. He was also the governor of Massachusetts. He signed a bill that created a partisan district in the Boston area that made this 
weird shape and it looked like a salamander. In any case, these districts that people will draw up try to combine groups of people or areas that they think will vote for them. You'll have a lot of situations where people will try to do it to help the incumbent and that's to keep your incumbents in place so people don't vote your incumbents out because incumbents are hard to get. We don't want to let those people go. <laughs> so let's just have some fun. Let's make a gerrymander for ourselves. <laughs> let's say our little area that we're looking at consists of a community college, a rural church-going area, a bunch of nice church-going country people, Amen. a suburban business district with some business people that live off in the suburbs. Yes. And then let's say we also have the northern edge of a real big city with maybe some young people, maybe a urban district there with some uh, clubs and things like that. Well, let's go ahead and work this out. First of all, if we're trying to make this for a conservative candidate, let's go ahead and keep that rural church-going area. Because if we're trying to get a conservative candidate elected or if we're trying to keep that conservative candidate elected, we want to keep those church-going people. In fact, we want to look into some other areas around us and see if we can pull in some more rural church-going area and combine that. Amen. Then let's look at the suburban area with the business people. Now, they're fiscally conservative there, but let's say they lean a little more socially liberal. But when it comes down to it, people vote with their pocketbook more than anything. We want to completely hold that area. Yes. So now we've got the church-going people with the business people, but we got this community college sitting there. We got all these young people and they vote really far to the left and they kind of stick out. Let's just blot them out <gasps> of our area. Let's just take them out all together. We'll move that liberal college over into one area that we're making over here to the side where we're combining a whole bunch of left-leaning areas into one. Okay, so now we have only place left is our big city. That's just the northern edge that we have of that big city. We may keep a little bit of that area just to make sure that we've got enough to make it fair, but let's blot out a little bit of that. Let's rub a little bit of that out, okay? Now we got our area. What we did is we just made a gerrymander. This is what they do. This helps create a biased area. And if we cut out things that we don't like and we keep in things we do, it makes it what it is. We've just gerrymandered it. So congratulations, you just made a gerrymander. Now we can count this area voting conservative for at least 10 years until the next census. In any case, the courts will get involved in this if they find out our gerrymander wasn't fair based on sex or religion or some other kind of discrimination, but especially based on race. The courts have ruled on this in the last few years. Yes! In the South, back in the days when they got away with it, they gerrymandered based on race big time, which was totally and completely unfair and should never have been done. Well, New York, in the case of 2020, they tried to gerrymander the other way, to the left. Oh! In 2014, one of Governor Andrew Cuomo's feats as governor was the passage of a constitutional amendment that changed the way New York's political maps were drawn. Instead of the legislature drawing the map, Draw. He wanted a bipartisan advisory commission to draw them up because they kept fighting over them over and over again, causing loads of problems. So he thought, this is the way to make it fair. Ah. Back then, they had a Republican Senate and a Democratic House, and they'd had this for a while. So this would create legally enforceable protections in state law against partisan gerrymandering. 
Cuomo said that the amendment would permanently reform the redistricting process in New York to once and for all end self-interested partisan gerrymandering. That is the way it was supposed to work. The commission is appointed by the legislature and has with fewer limitations on whom they can appoint compared to other states. More importantly, this commission doesn't have the final say on maps, unlike some other states do with their commissions. Any maps it draws must still be approved by the legislature. This is key. And if lawmakers reject two proposals in a row, yeah. then the legislature has free reign to do their own maps. <sighs> this is where the problem started. The plan was originally drawn up, as I said, when Republicans had one house and Democrats had the other. But since 2021, New York's divided government no longer exists. Instead, the shifting political tide means Democrats hold the supermajority in both houses. They didn't need to or want to compromise with Republicans. They could just do what they wanted. If Democrats had simply voted down commission proposals, they could just freehand their own gerrymandered maps. They could do whatever they wanted. That's what they planned to do. Yes. The potential for Democratic gerrymandering, though, in turn, created an incentive on the committee for Republican appointees to just stop the process entirely. Because if you stop it, no maps are drawn. The legislature can't vote. You completely kill it. Hiya! This option suddenly looked way better for Republicans since they knew there was no compromise possible. See, this is what happens when we don't compromise and work together. We kill each other's processes. We don't make government work like it's supposed to. We don't make each other work like we're supposed to. We should work together. So the plan worked for Republicans. Democrats tried to end the stoppage by passing a law allowing the legislature to redistrict in the event the Republicans tried to do this, but the court said, no, you can't do this. That violates the law. <coughs> in the end, the courts appointed something called a special master ah. to draw up the maps. And he had to draw them up based on the 2014 law. And guess what happened? He made them fair. <laughs> <laughs> so the Democrats got nothing of what they wanted. Had they just worked with Republicans, they would have probably gotten more of what they wanted had they fought like they did against them. In the end, the special master chose to make significant changes to the map, seemingly in the interest of having compact district and avoiding favoring incumbents based on the rules that were in the 2014 law. The left calls these rules ambiguous. They say they're not fair. No. They say they're not right. But if you read the laws and you read the rules, this is what the special master did. And maybe if there were more precise rules, maybe this would make the whole thing less contentious. However, this is the way it came out. Yummy. And the Democrats did not fight it. Crazy. And now we have one of the most fairly drawn maps in the country. Maybe the most fairly drawn map in the country. And I see a poll now with Donald Trump within seven points of Biden in New York. That's a stunner. And what a stunner it would be if he were to win New York with this new redistricting, this new drawing. The last time I remember a Republican winning New York was 1984, but I'm not sure. But it definitely hasn't been since then. And the rules are with most states, if you win that state, you win all of their electors. I'm not sure exactly really how fair this is, but that's the way it is. That's the way we've had it for a long time. You betcha. But that's for another discussion to figure out whether that's fair or not. Nebraska and Maine are two states which award their electors individually, so maybe theirs is more fair, but again, we'll talk about that more later. In any case, there have been some changes to our nation with the 2020 census. 
In the census, we discovered some states lost populations while others have gained populations. So if you live in the great state of Texas, where I do, we are the big winners. We gained two seats in the house, gained more than anybody else. We gained four in 2010. So Texas is really gaining a lot of power. Montana, Oregon, North Carolina, Florida, and Colorado also gained a seat. California, Illinois, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia all lost a seat. Most of those gaining seats are red or purple states. Most of those losing seats are blue or purple states. Looking at the next presidential election, this bodes well for Republicans because this gives them around a net of plus five on electors and seats in the Electoral College and in the House. So looking at the next Electoral College, things are going to be interesting, especially if New York becomes critical to Democrats. There is no way at this point that I see the Democrats winning the presidential election without New York. By my calculations, Democrats would have to win every single battleground state. That is every single one. That is Pennsylvania, Ohio, Oregon, Nevada, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, every single one to win the presidential election. (laughs) And right now they are behind in those states in every significant poll that I've seen, whether it's CNN, the New York Times, UMass, USA Today, whatever. And frankly, they're behind in every single significant poll that I've looked at, whether it's any of those polls, the LA Times, University of Texas, Harvard, whatever. This move in seats gives an edge in winning the House as well for Republicans. This makes it much more of an interesting election than you think. And especially in comparing with this past week's election results, with abortion being such a strong factor, as I alluded to in my previous podcast. You might want to look back at the podcast that covers abortion and look into that because I predicted abortion would have a big part in these elections coming up. This is going to make the next presidential election substantial with the moves that have been made because of the census, because of gerrymandering in some states, because of not having gerrymandering in other states like New York, and because of all the different moves that have made this much more interesting and much more close of an election. Well, like I said, Democrats chose not to participate in New York. They chose to make it what it was. And I don't like gerrymandering in general. I say, let's make it fair. Let's force you to get your message out. Let's force you to go shake hands. Let's force you to campaign fairly. Get your posters up. Get your signs out. Get your stickers. I am tired of the power brokers in this country just sitting on power. It should be power to the people, not to the limousines. When America truly operates this way, our democracy is healthier. Well, coming up next, we have a truly great story about a hero you may have heard of. You may have even heard maybe a little bit of his music, Mm. but you may know nothing about him. For Veterans Day, I wanted you to meet a man who stood up for his country when it really counted, when it really mattered, but maybe not in a way you may expect to hear. He helped unite our country after the war as well, in another way you may not expect. Stay with us for this look into the life of one of America's greatest heroes. We'll be right back.
have great stories. If you think about it, there are unique ways in which we have all traversed our world. But some individuals in life have a story that transcends anything you can explain. In this week's Great American Hero segment, we discuss a person we don't even necessarily remember or understand what a great hero he really was. This person was a musician, a jazzer. Some call him a swing jazzer. Some call him a musician of the swing era. But he had more top 10 American music hits than Elvis and the Beatles combined. And he did it in less than five years, remarkably. We begin our story talking about Glenn Miller, or as his real name was, Alton Glenn Miller. Born on March the 1st, 1904 in Clarinda, Iowa, he grew up on a farm, but he wanted to be a musician right away. He had originally been playing the mandolin, but wanted to switch instruments, hearing jazz on the radio and picking up the sounds of New Orleans. So with money he earned from milking cows, he brought a trombone. He studied music at the University of Colorado, but decided he needed to leave school in order to pursue music further. In fact, he wanted to be a musician so badly, he missed his own high school graduation to be a musician. He was playing the night of his graduation. His mom gave him his diploma later. He played with bands here and there until he caught on finally with the Ben Pollock band. And right off the bat, even though his trombone playing was really good, it was his arrangements of music that the band leaders began to notice and they began to ask for his arrangements. Some of the band leaders that began to look at his arrangements included Red Nichols, Ray Noble, Smith Ballou. You may have heard of a few of those, maybe, but only if you're probably really into jazz. But how about these guys? You probably have heard of them. The Dorsey Brothers and Benny Goodman. He started to work his way up. Eventually, he formed his own band and began making his own arrangements of songs that were already great. In 1935, he studied music with Joseph Schillinger. You may have heard of him, you may not, but he was a teacher of the great George Gershwin. Oh! And he would go on to say, Glenn Miller, a band ought to have a sound all its own. It ought to have a personality. Well, he finally formed a band of his own in 1937 but it fell absolutely flat by 1938. And he just disbanded it. And he kind of went in and out of forming bands, not forming bands. He, he started to give up music altogether. He, he was really discouraged and disgusted. He had all sorts of problems, the bus breaking down, but he didn't give up. Yes. In 1938, he reorganized an entirely new band. And in 1939, they performed at New Rochelle, New York on a hit radio show this was finally the exposure he needed. He hit the big time with a hit song called Wishing Will Make It So, and then he wrote his own song called Moonlight Serenade. that would really make him a star. It became his theme song that he would play at every one of his concerts. He began playing in ballrooms all along the East Coast, including several that hosted national radio broadcasts. His live appearances routinely broke records all over the place. 
1939, Miller got his own thrice weekly radio show. Listen to that. Thrice weekly radio show. The band was in constant demand for recording sessions, and he made so many recordings, and so many of them are now super legendary. In fact, truly legendary. Glenn Miller is the first recording artist in history to receive a gold record. <gasps> he did so when his recording of the song Chattanooga Choo Choo reached 1.2 million in sales, and Miller was given the gold record. He now defines what it is to be a rock star because he was the first. He really quite possibly became the biggest success in music history, and I do mean music history. I mentioned Elvis and the Beatles earlier. Over their combined 100 years of making music, they had 59 top hits. Over the next five years, between 38 and 43, Glenn Miller would top them both with 69 top 10 hits and 16 number one hits, an incredible music legacy that has never been beat. So if you're bigger than the Beatles and you're bigger than Elvis, how else can you qualify a person other than saying they are the biggest musical hit in history? In fact, Glenn Miller was the biggest selling musical artist in the US and one of the biggest in the world between 1939 and 1942, a three year run that has never been matched and probably never will. He also helped bring America together, fusing New Orleans-style jazz with mainstream American classics, taking the blues of, let's say, the St. Louis blues. a song he looked at and decided he wanted to work off of, a song written by W.C. Handy, a black composer from the early 20th century. He rearranged the tune, rewrote it in some ways, and it became the St. Louis Blues March with a military style to it. In a recent article by Harriet Collins, she points out that Miller, quote, transcends musical genres. With the song, she said, he showcases the deep emotions that are often associated with the blues, while also generating an uplifting and powerful atmosphere that captivates audiences. She went on to point out that this remarkable piece of music reflects the turbulent history of the United States, its cultural heritage, and the profound impact of African-American musical traditions. The St. Louis Blues March combines harmonies, melodies, and rhythms that touch the soul, tell a story of struggle, resilience, and the power of music to unite people from all walks of life. And guess what? That is, in essence, Glenn Miller. He did this in just a few short years, combining and uniting our culture in ways that I don't think we really understand to this day. And when we needed it so badly, we were fighting a horrific war. Yes! And here he was born a farm boy, raised to appreciate his country, studying its vastness, studying the vastness of its culture as well, 
not just appreciating one culture, the Iowa farm culture, but appreciating all of it, including the New Orleans jazz. Some jazz purists do not like his music, strangely enough, because it mixes jazz with other forms and popular songs and all that. But I do. And I think it is jazz music. It's just a different form. It's just like any kind of music, which takes on different forms here and there. What is Willie Nelson's music? It's all sorts of things. It's blues. It's R&B. It's jazz. It's country. It's gospel. It's bluegrass. So what if he's not a purist country music singer? Who cares? He's the great Willie Nelson. As he began to combine music for military audiences, he began to show his real talent. He cared about his military audiences. The famous band leader showed support for all military forces through radio broadcasts and performances nationwide and eventually even worldwide. He did not forget his roots either. He gave out free records to military members and he even gave out phonographs. He would find a military member that did not have a record player. He would try to give him a record and find out, well, you can't play this record. And he would buy him a record player that they could play it on. And he would go around and he would give record players to military camps all over the world, making sure that they could hear his music and get pumped up for the war effort. His music came not only to define a jazz ideal, but with how well it was loved by his audiences, it came to define the swing era. For those who have heard his music, some of these songs are some of the best loved songs of all time. The Glenn Miller Band included a tenor saxophonist singer named Tex Beneke. Not exactly your most (laughs) jazz-sounding name. Sounds more like a country singer. But he could play, and he could sing, and he crooned on such hits such as Chattanooga Choo Choo, I've Got a Gal in Kalamazoo, and Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree. All some of the best-loved songs of the Glenn Miller Band. Miller said he was just trying to make money, but he was always humble about his success. By 1941, though, he was already being slotted into Hollywood. That's how big he made it in just two short years. He made his first two films by 1941. He was as big a star as you could be at this point with so many hits. And then guess what he did? He walked away from it all. That's right, I'm tapping the microphone. You heard me correctly. I am working. This is working, your ears are working. In 1942, he felt that the war effort needed more help. He tried to enlist to fight. He was 38 years old at this point, and he volunteered for the Navy, but they said, no, thanks, you're too old, go away. So then he tried the Army, and the Army at first was like, eh, and then one brilliant person there said, well, wait a second. And then there was a meeting of the minds. They let Miller persuade them to take on something different. Miller said he could put a little more spring into the feet of our marching men and a little more joy into their hearts. And he wanted to be placed in charge of a modernized army band. That didn't go over so well at first. They didn't want jazz in their military stuff. They wanted John Philip Sousa music. They wanted marches. They wanted the military straight up stuff. Oh. And he bit back and he said, well, you had that stuff in World War I, but you're not still using the same planes, are you? (laughs) And the military thought about it and said, eh. That's true. Maybe we could use something new. And so they let him do his thing. And he joined the U.S. Army Air Corps as a captain. His mission, though, was to form bands while modernizing military music. He was to help with troop inspiration, energy, purpose, morale. He himself wanted to give them a reason to fight. 
In addition, he could speak German. He made some recordings speaking German to German audiences along with his music so that he could fight Nazi propaganda using his star power and his music. All of this ultimately worked in many different ways, but it all worked big time. By 1943, he had created and directed the 418th Army Air Forces Band, recruiting servicemen from all over the country, the best of the best musicians to be in this band. He was under the command of the Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Forces in London, and he had a 50-member band. And listen to this, almost unbelievably, they were performing 18 hours a day, recording, making live appearances. And he wrote to a friend, quote, we played at 35 different air bases. During our, quote, spare time, we did 40 broadcasts. <laughs> the army rewarded his hard work by making him a major in July, 1944. But he was so gung-ho to help the troops that he didn't really look after himself. And on a frosty night, December 15th, 1944, he boarded a transport plane to take him to set up a huge concert to play for the troops in Paris. This concert was to help rally the troops for some of the final battles of World War II that lay ahead. His manager was to board this plane in London. But alas, Glenn Miller was a perfectionist and he always wanted to put a lot into his concerts. He wanted them to go off without a hitch. He himself wanted to be into the preparation for this Paris concert he replaced his manager on this plane. The plane never arrived, and he was never seen again. His body, to this day, has never been found. In 1992, a memorial was placed at Arlington National Cemetery to honor him at the request of his daughter. And in the classiest move ever by the Grammys, he was given a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2003. Despite the fact that, frankly, all of his music was recorded before the Grammys ever existed, this is truly a sign of respect for a legend. There are many theories tied to his death. In 2014, the University of Colorado released an investigation along with PBS that looked into the flight, the plane, and the details of it. They concluded the plane had some tanks on the wings that had frozen, and it had crashed almost immediately into the English Channel, killing all aboard. To back this up, there is a fisherman with a really strange story of hooking a plane but losing it back into the ocean, and a description of it matched Miller's. But there are other theories. Some of them go into the bizarre, go into the strange, some of them go into even aliens, but the most intriguing is that because of Miller's background, he was a spy. He was able to speak German, and he had been on a secret mission for the United States. He was assigned to even possibly assassinate Hitler or to get information off of it. I've never believed any of these theories, but perhaps there's something to them. And even perhaps Miller lived past the point of this downing of this airplane. There are some theories that say he did. There are some theories that say he was a secret spy hiding out and that they never could reveal his identity because of that. All of this is far-fetched and we will never know. The likelihood is that his plane simply went down and that we lost a musical legend. With classics like In the Mood, American Patrol, Pennsylvania 65000, and Little Brown Jug, Glenn Miller will never truly be forgotten. But in many ways, Glenn Miller is not gone. He's not dead. He's still here with us. The Glenn Miller Orchestra still exists. To this day, right now, you can go here and play. They've been going since 1956. 
several years after his death when they reorganized. And they reorganized in his name and they still play all of his songs. And the interesting thing is for a man who helped give Bing Crosby a start, for a man who played with the Dorsey brothers, for a man who was so super famous that he was pretty much known everywhere and his music was known everywhere. He was a simple man. He was an American man. And Glenn Miller is America in a lot of ways. Yes. His favorite author was Runyon. His favorite book was the Bible. Spencer Tracy and Olivia de Havilland were his favorite actor and actress. He loved trout fishing, baseball, and listening to good music. He liked to sleep and he liked to make money. And he hated to hear bad music for sure. He didn't like to be woken up in the morning early with telephone calls. He didn't like to tell people goodbye. And one phrase that he would quote all the time was not from the Bible or from Runyon or from a lot of the people you might think. His favorite phrase to quote, and this tells you a lot about Glenn Miller and how he helped change America, was from the great Duke Ellington. And the quote he would say over and over again is, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. But I do not think he is appreciated enough by modern historians or musicians. He helped change music. He helped win the war. He helped make America a much more integrated society. I do not think you can say much more about a person. Oh, and he may have been the biggest music sensation of all time. All in just a five-year period in his late 30s and early 40s. This proves it is never too late to try or never too late to care. In the model of Glenn Miller, look around and see what you can do for your world, not what it can do for you. Coming up later, what is up with Trump running for office again? How has that looked in history? How did this most recent election reflect on his chances? We look back in history to find out what is the confection in our election 2024. And after the break, we look at religion in our society and how it has changed in this ladies could be Hades as we could really be looking at what is Hades around here. <gasps> Coming up next on Lefty Lucy, Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. Please stay with us and please press that follow button on the platform you're listening. Don't worry, <laughs> it doesn't bite. It won't hurt, well, much anyway. But please stay with us. Thank you. 
Thank you again for listening to our little program. Please let us know what you think and hit that like button or let us know on our Facebook page. Please. We would appreciate any thoughtful feedback on the show and we thank everyone who has expressed their thoughts so far. They are so appreciated. We are just getting this show off and running. We have listeners all across the country and some may be Baptists. Catholics, Buddhists, Methodists, perhaps monks, or even nuns, and perhaps some are agnostic or atheist. Ooh. All will find this next segment interesting. Take a look into the latest polls on what is going on in religion in this country. Some are beginning to prophesy that Christianity will account for less than 50% of the U.S. population within the next 50 years, if not sooner. At least that is how one survey sees it. Others are quite in disagreement. In our feature we call This Ladies Could Be Hades, could America become the Hades that Europe has become? I lived in the UK for a while in the 90s and I went to church there in many different denominations and congregations. I tried out several. I went to an almost empty St. Paul's Cathedral where about 200 or maybe less worshipers filled this vast cathedral, huge thing for mass. The service was very somber. It was very quiet. It was your typical high church service. I was not greeted at the end. I got to know no one. No one seemed to care that I was there. I then went to about a dozen or so other churches where I saw similar things happening with similar numbers in the congregation, typical types of responses from the congregations, except in one. There was a Baptist church I went to there. It was unbelievably welcoming. They ushered me in with the folks I attended right down to the front. They made us feel at home with introductions and hugs and welcomes. Then it followed up with a most moving church service. It was filled with uplifting, spiritually filling music, a moving message from the minister. And at the end, my friends and I were surrounded by people. It took us a while to even leave there. And then we were making friends and then we wound up eating with some of them. I didn't find this church until my last couple of weeks there. I wish I'd found it sooner. The place was packed, so packed, people were standing around, standing around the sides, in the back, in the balcony. The choir was completely filled with singers. It was a truly moving experience that I have never forgotten, even these many years later. Yes! And so goes religion everywhere. In one place, we see religion dying, and in another place, we see it growing and even expanding, both here and around the world. Evangelical churches like that one still have life and some are still growing, especially the Pentecostal church, which seems to be the number one growing church, not only here, but around the world right now, while the remainder of Christendom shrinks. PRRI, a think tank out of Washington, says in their survey that only about 67% of Americans now are Christian. This compares to what they say was around 90% in the 90s. They say that a large percentage of Americans now, around 27%, are unaffiliated with any religion. (gasps) The survey polled a few thousand people by phone during the summer. They say their poll has a margin of error about 2%. But I will be honest right here, I simply don't believe this poll, at least the way they are framing the results. Because this is what it means by polling and what this poll means. We are starting to get to the point that polls don't mean very much. If anything in America, first off, when I look at a poll, I look at how deeply they conducted it, what conducting the poll meant, what questions they asked, who conducted the poll, what group was behind it, what did they want to get out of the poll, who was paying for the poll, and when 
did you conduct the poll? And then how aggressive did the pollsters get with trying to get answers? Did they just try to get any answer? Or did they care about the answers that they got? Did they try to get truthful answers from the people? And did they get it right by political science standards? And someone conducting a religious poll may not have been necessarily doing that. This comparison versus the 90s is the first problem I have when almost everyone had a landline and what it means for the future. We have to get away from polling by phone in this way. Polls mostly told us that Trump was gonna lose the election in a landslide in 2016, and he won, even with some wiggle room. Polls said Democrats would probably lose the Senate last year, and they didn't. They misread the abortion debate all across the country and the polls misread it. Polls are now being used by pollsters to make them say what they want them to say. All right, Ken. This PRRI is a left-leaning organization, although they call themselves unbiased. Wise guy. But I looked at what and who they are. They are telling you something they want you to believe, that religion is dying in this country and they have dire predictions on it and all this kind of stuff. Their report does definitely uncover some truths about the shrinking of religious practices in this country. How much? Well, do you really believe that 90 plus percent of America was practicing their religion, believing everything it taught and was regularly going to church in the 1990s? Well, ho. If you do, then you are the crazy person here. Ho, ho. I was there in the 1990s. I was a music leader and a regular attendee. Do I think that it has dropped some? Yes but to the level they are trying to tell you, no. The reasons they give are really making it apparent what the whole poll was about. They say the number one reason that people don't go to church or got away from their religion, 30% indicated they were turned off by the religion's negative teachings about or treatment of LGBTQ people. 29% say their family was never that religious growing up. 27% say they were disillusioned by scandals involving leaders in their former religion. 18% point to a traumatic event in their lives. And 17% say their church became too focused on politics, which that part, I would definitely believe because way too many churches, in fact, way too many people are focused on politics. Yes. I believe, as I said, some of this, especially the part about the 29% saying that their family was never that religious. Let's look at the 90s. Less than 60% of people were going to church regularly then. And thus the 30% that are not religious now doesn't surprise me. Oh. (laughs) I also read into the tea leaves of the poll. Of the 27% who say they are not affiliated with the religion, 72% believe in God. Not very good atheists at all. It was probably not too far off of this in the 70s, in the 90s, and even 20 years ago. You bet. They may have called themselves Methodists or Episcopal or Catholic then because that's the way they were raised, their family was that way, but they didn't go to church, they didn't practice it, they didn't do any of the things that went with it. They just were raised that way and they have six members of their family who are still Catholic or still Methodist and they go to church once a year at Christmas and so they call themselves Methodists. (sighs) Many of the surveys then did not use the non-affiliated response as a response. In fact, they asked the questions assuming Christianity in this country. Yes. They assumed the denomination. They assumed that you were Christian. They assumed that you were part of a denomination when they ask you a question. And let's be frank, they were paid to get answers. They were paid to get answers then, they're paid to get answers now. (laughs) This is a whole other discussion about polling and I won't get into all that now. But how many pollsters are getting answers to what they want Mm -hmm. and not the true answers? Yes! If they added the words unaffiliated then and compared it to now, they may have gotten more correct responses. In any case, you cannot compare more recent polling 
with the less open-ended questions of, let's say, the Gallup poll of 1950, the first religious poll ever taken, which asked, are you Protestant, Christian, Roman Catholic, or Jewish? Not much choice there, is it? No. I guess you could just not answer, but what are your other choices? I trust the Gallup organization more. But they essentially got close to the same results, although they found more Christians and they found more people practicing their faith than this PRRI organization did. However, digging into the people who do not identify with an organized religion here, 81% of America believes in God. This is down a little from the 1980s. It was about 88, 87%. A vast majority of Americans go to some type of worship service, though. That's Ooh. what Gallup found. Most pray, most have some type of faith. We are still talking about only about 10% of America who are atheists or agnostics. And then you dig down further, there's even a tiny percentage who are actually true atheists, less than 4%. Even still, all these polls show we pray less, we go to church less, we pray less together, we pray less together as a family, we think about our religion less, and we think about God less than what we have in the past. <laughs> that makes me think too. No wonder the pandemic interrupted church service. It has not gone back to levels that it was before the pandemic. Surveys actually showed it was beginning to climb just before the pandemic, but collapsed during the pandemic. It is really difficult to count religion right now because of the way we handled that pandemic. <laughs> There's also a lot of religious affiliation switching going on, especially with those under 30. Churches, frankly, have less identity too. If I went to a non-denominational church, I would not equate myself with any of the major churches. So if you ask me, are you Roman Catholic, Methodist, Episcopal, whatever, I would just say, no, I'm nothing. Ooh. Churches are dropping away or being booted from other organized churches and becoming unaffiliated with and becoming more independent churches. Catholics have lost the most members of any American church followed by mainstream Protestants. That would be starting with the Methodists and working our way down. And I find this interesting. If everyone's leaving these churches because they have issues with their politics, why is it the more mainstream churches that are the ones that are losing their members? But which churches have grown, if any? Well, the Jewish faith has grown here. Ooh. Well, so has non-denominational Christian churches. Hmm. There are more than nine thousand of them now than there were 10 years ago. Just listen to that, 9,000. There are now more than five times as many non-denominational churches in this country as there are Presbyterian churches. If you go back to 1900, this would be a shocking number. Yes! If this were a denomination, it would make up 13% of churchgoers in America. It frankly would be the second largest denomination to Catholics. <gasps> so what is better than a poll? Well, earlier we talked about a census and churches have one too. The U.S. religion census is what measures numbers in churches across America. It's an actual census with teams of people counting congregations, collecting reports, doing things where they go in and actually count people. The National Council of Churches started this project in 1952 and then dropped it for a little while. Then the Association of Statisticians of American Religious Bodies revived it in 1990. This count has become the most official count of religious groups in America. This survey did find a lot of churches shrinking, but found some growing. But how can you count them during a pandemic? They did this count in 2020 during the pandemic. <laughs> especially when churches close during a pandemic. How do you count people who are there? 
Christianity itself is not done. It is actually growing around the world, believe it or not. In fact, even Catholicism is growing around the world. The most interesting thing is it's growing in South Korea. There's one church in South Korea that has 600,000 members. <gasps> not kidding. An interesting look by CNN may change the way we look at immigration and the way we look at politics and the way we look at religion. This is a startling fact. Christians are coming here in droves from around the world. Ooh. CNN pointed out that, quote, for years, church leaders and commentators have warned that Christianity is dying in America. They say the American church is poised to follow the paths of churches in Western Europe, soaring Gothic cathedrals with empty pews, shuttered church buildings converted into skate parks and nightclubs, and a secularized society where one theologian said Christianity as a norm is probably gone for good, or at least for the next hundred years. <gasps> but surprisingly, just as some of these polls I pointed to are saying that Christianity is falling off, others say, don't pay attention to them. Thomas Jefferson himself famously predicted the end of Christianity in the 1820s, stating that Christianity would be replaced in the U.S. by a more enlightened form of religion that rejected Jesus's divinity and belief in miracles. Instead, Christianity in the U.S. was marked by some of the greatest revivals and Christian movements in the history of the world after he said this. <laughs> some that spread and frankly are still spreading around the world right now. Amen. Ever heard of a guy by the name of Billy Graham? Ever see his stuff on TV? Well, that's just one of them. Ooh. But Joseph Slaughter, a historian and professor at Wesleyan University says we should not quote, bet against American Christianity, particularly evangelicalism and its ability to adapt and remain a significant shaper of American society. Many in other countries migrating here see Christianity as the religion of freedom. And frankly, I do too. If you follow the teachings of Jesus, he did not tell us to pillage the American West or to ride forth into crusades and kill people. No. He said our most important commandments were to love one another as ourselves and to love the Lord thy God with all your heart. These are not the commandments of a dictator or a fascist, but of one who loves. Those in this culture of millennials who want to rewrite history to make them feel better about themselves should look at history as a teacher, not a chalkboard where you have an erase marker. We do not want to repeat the mistakes of history. Therefore, we should learn from them, acknowledge them, certainly say what they are, but not make them disappear or try to sugarcoat them to make you feel better about them. You won't learn a thing from that, and you are dooming your descendants to repeat them. Yes! Let's look at American immigration right now, for example. Many Americans fear it because they have in the past. Many in the past have feared it. We actually made it illegal for a while. Legal immigration was illegal for a while in this country. But however, many legal migrants coming here happen to be coming from predominantly Christian nations. They see coming here as a way to celebrate their Christian faith, be free from impeding laws or structure where they are living. Churches should welcome them. Many congregations don't realize how much their Christian identity is wrapped up with some kind of nationalist narrative. Perry Hamillis, a religion professor at North Central College in Illinois says, there's nothing wrong with loving one's country, but from a Christian perspective, that ought to be always secondary to the mission of building the body of Christ and witnessing to the gospel in the world. So with this being true, could America be on the verge of another great awakening? We sure need it. Almost 80% of Americans see our country as being on the wrong track. Oh. There's crime. The suicide rate is high. The divorce rate is high. Oh. Many are not even trying to get married anymore. Many are not even trying to have families anymore. 
And when you see this, there is definitely a spiritual crisis going on here. <sighs> but the church has answered this before. Will it answer it again? There could be a call you are receiving right now to act, to do something. Will you answer it? Next, we discuss the confection in our election as we look at the possible re-election of a former president. That would be Donald Trump. Crazy! Or perhaps his failure to win. What does history say about this and what other parts of history are we looking at with a Trump re-election bid after a loss? Please keep it here. <laughs> don't press that stop button. No, don't do it. No, keep it here. We are back for the final part of the program today. The election in 2024 will be interesting. It will be historic. Ooh. And there is one really interesting way in which it will be unique. A former president is running again. We have not had this happen in this country in over 80 years. And we're going to talk about it in a new feature we call, What is the Confection in Our Election? Today, we will look at history of former presidents running again and the meaning of the election results. Well, Trump is running for president again. And what has happened in the past? We do not have many examples, frankly, but we do have one successful one. Grover Cleveland is the only former president who has ever come back after having been defeated for re-election to win a second non-consecutive term. Cleveland was a Democrat from New York. He had won a very narrow victory in 1884. Then in 1888, his victory in the popular vote was so slim, he lost in the Electoral College. Wah. He did win the popular vote, though. Boy! And he was renominated in 1892 and decisively beat Benjamin Harrison, oh, oh. the man he had lost to four years earlier. Ah. I will add a tidbit here. Despite the fact that many young people have cried for an end to the Electoral College, <laughs> This electoral college helps keep the rural areas balanced with the big cities. 
Without it, politicians would only campaign in Philly, New York, LA, Chicago, the big cities, and they would leave the rest of America to sink. Your roads in the rural areas would be, everything else would be in the rural areas. You would have nothing. The Electoral College forces you to campaign everywhere and it makes everywhere important. So bridges and other things that are in North Dakota and far west Texas become important. In any case, we had some unsuccessful ones as well. Uh, Several, actually. Ulysses S. Grant, the general who helped win the Civil War and served two terms as president, sat out a term and then ran again. Although he led the field for nearly the entire GOP primary and convention, Grant couldn't win a majority of the delegates to secure the nomination and lost to James A. Garfield on the 36th ballot. You think we vote a lot now. Back then, presidents could run as much as they wanted to. President George Washington had tried to set a good example by bowing out after two terms and relinquishing power. His goodbye speech is one of the greatest political speeches in all of history, but it was just a tradition he tried to set. It was not until FDR was reelected four times, the record, by the way, (gasps) that Republicans who didn't like giving a Democrat so much power for so long put into place the 22nd Amendment, putting two terms as the limit on presidents. So Herbert Hoover comes along, and this is before FDR, was bitter after he was soundly defeated by FDR. In 1932, he tried to work his way through a behind-the-scenes battle for the GOP nomination in 1936 against Alf M. Landon. How about that name for you? And he was the ultimate Republican nominee. But he failed and then made a more concerted effort in 1940. He went to the Republican convention and was seemingly loved by all the Republicans. They applauded warmly for him. But he received just 17 votes on the first ballot and was never a contender. Martin Van Buren ran in 1840 on the anti-slavery Free Soil Party, but was just a whimper, receiving less than 10% of the vote. And then good old Zachary Taylor, he died in office after only 16 months as president, and Millard Fillmore took his place, another name I love. And he was nominated for the Whig Party for a full term in 1852. But he lost to Winfield Scott in the primary, who then lost himself. He was never president. Four years later, Fillmore was nominated as the American or Know Nothing Party's presidential candidate. Fillmore finished third in the voting with just 21.6% of the popular vote, but received only eight electoral votes from Maryland. And then the story of presidents running again, the one I love the most. This is one of my personal heroes, Theodore Roosevelt. He tried to save an endangered bird once. You will hear that story in a later podcast. He also came to the presidency after a death. This time it was William McKinley's assassination in 1901. (gasps) He won a second term in 1904, but one of his pledges as running for president was to never run again. And if you are aware of President George Bush's no new taxes pledge in the early 1990s, you know politicians don't always do what they say. And he ran again mostly out of sheer sadness for the performance of his successor, William Howard Taft, the president who weighed more than any other in history. We know for a fact that he weighed more than 300 pounds, which is the record for presidents. Roosevelt ran against him, even though he personally selected him to succeed him. He ran against him for the Republican nomination the next time and lost. And then he tried again, four years later. But this time he couldn't get into the Republican 
primary. So he decided to form his own party. What else do you do? AOV. And he called it the Bull Moose Party. It's my favorite name for a political party in all of history, but he lost. So we had presidents who have become congressmen, senator, other political posts, including Supreme Court, but only one succeeded in winning the whole thing. Can Trump do it? I would say right now it's an uphill battle, but he is ahead in the polls. Mm. I would say it is tough, but looking at Grover Cleveland's election, it is modeling that way. Uh. He lost in a close one the last time, and he's on the comeback. I personally would rather see new blood. I'd rather see Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or this Dean Phillips, which some have said they had to Google. But Trump is determined. Ooh. He is so nearly determined, but he's also nearly 80. Yes! So what does that mean for the future? Well, for certain, if Trump were to win, uh. it will be someone else we are looking forward to in the next four years from now. Yes! Biden will be over 80. Yes! Biden running again, not likely. Yes! So there's one thing that we're gonna come out of this election 2024 with new blood in 2028. Yay, finally. And that is our show for today. Please let us know what you think by telling us you can write a note like in class, except, well, we probably won't get it. So perhaps just jot down some comments wherever you listen to our show. We are now on Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Samsung Podcasts, Podchaser, and Boomplay. And we want to take a moment to honor all of our nation's veterans and active service men and women for what they have done for this nation. Men like my father who fought in the Pacific War during World War II and women like Pauline slater Hobbs, who also served during the same time as an army nurse and men like my Uncle Ronnie who fought during a different conflict but who bravely served our country. Without folks like them, where would we be? During this time of remembering our veterans, I would like to point you in the direction of a movie. This movie was made about the life of the great Glenn Miller, and it features the legendary Jimmy Stewart, who played Major Glenn Miller. I would encourage you to watch it with your family. It will bring you closer. Yes. It will make you think of all the veterans who have served. It will make you understand the point of service and what goes into it. And again, we appreciate your feedback and encouragement on this program. Drop us a line on Facebook or one of the platforms you listen to us on. And we appreciate you in advance for doing this. Thank you again, Will J, our superb announcer. Next week, we will talk about another great American hero, a Native American who befriended my ancestors, (gasps) aided the pilgrims, and lived at peace with settlers for more than 50 years. And in our poli side for the normal guy segment, we will talk about caucuses and what can happen in the Iowa caucus. Ah! Caucuses are very different. And a caucus we will go. Yes, that's right. Next week on our program, please be here for that show. And as we get closer to the Thanksgiving season, we will discuss the pardoning of turkeys and why this really is a political matter. Believe it or not. And we will have some fun with that. So please join us again next week. Jelly right I am Craig Allen, your host. You have been listening to Lefty Lucy Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. Yahoo! Thank you again for joining us and for downloading our program. Join us again next week for another entertaining look into the world of politics. 